carrying on our series this morning on discipleship, and the subject I particularly want to look at is how we are called to live a distinctive life. I'm just going to use that word distinctive. We may think of that as a holy life, a life that is different from what we see going on around us, a life that glorifies God and honors him in every way. A life where we are demonstrating victory over sin, we are living as free people, and we are serving God with all our hearts. And the way we're going to do this is by walking through a passage of Scripture. Um, and I want to comment just on the passage first of all. We're going to start in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. If you've got your Bible, it would be great to open them. And we're going to go through to 6, verse 14. Now, you'll notice, first of all, we've just got a tail end, two verses of chapter 5, and we've got 14 verses of chapter 6. And the reason being is that the chapter and verse headings in your Bible were just added sometime later after it was written as a helpful index. But sometimes it's an unhelpful construct because we miss the flow of what is being said. One of my sons has just bought himself a Bible that is a Bible without chapters and verses. Clever, actually. So you, you read it differently. You get a different flow. You see cause and effect, the implication of what is being said, worked out in a different way. So that's why we're starting in Romans chapter 5 and the first couple of verses. And also the other thing I want to convey just as a principle as you read your Bibles is when you look at the letters in the New Testament, you will find many of them structured in this way. The, the, the writer of those letters will give you a whole load of doctrine or theology, things that we should be believing, before turning to a practical application. And that's the case here in Romans 5 and into 6. But the, the majority of what I'm going to say is what we should be believing, and then a little bit about how we work that out in practice. So Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says this, for law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me explain what those verses mean. Paul, the writer to the Romans, has been taking them through a bit of history about the Jewish nation, about how laws were introduced, and he comes here to explain the purpose of the law, because the law wasn't given for the first four or five hundred years. They lived without the law. The purpose of the law was several fold. Firstly, it was to bring order to society. We know that without laws, it just all goes wrong and life is less endurable. Or if you think not of laws of society, but laws of a game. If you've ever played football and you don't have a pitch marked out and there's no rules, it's just chaos. I hate it, you know, because I like to know what the boundaries are, how I can be creative and live and flourish within those. So the law was given, first of all, to bring order. Secondly, to make us aware that we can't really keep it in full. <laughs> Where there is no law, we're not aware that we're breaking it. So that's what this verse is saying. The law was given so that a trespass might increase. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Which is the third thing. Knowing that we cannot keep the law forces us to go, oh my goodness, I feel shame. I feel guilt about what I'm doing. What do I do? I need something or I need somebody to help me through this. And the law is put into effect to lead us to Christ. It's a wonderful thing. 
that when the law is there and we break the law and we sin and we fail and we mess up, it's okay because that leads us to a savior. It leads us to grace. So when we become a Christian, we become a Christian through grace. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. Justice is getting what we do deserve, and that would be punishment for sin. But grace is getting something which we don't deserve, which is life, which is relationship with God. So the call to live distinctively starts with grace. Grace is our master. So this message is not a try harder, do better message. You need to understand that as we go through it. So first of all, grace is our new master. Secondly, let's carry on looking at these verses. We can move on through the slides. Come on, I'm going to have to have good eyes here. It's like those smallest lines on the opticians thing. I'm going to read all of these verses. <laughs> or I could get someone at the back to just to... No, I won't. So we're carrying on now into verse 1 of chapter 6. It says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Jesus, Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we, saw, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. First couple of verses. So Paul is brilliant at um, thinking up objections or thinking up where the argument he has put forward might lead. So remember he's just said, where sin is, there's even more grace to cover sin. So he's now thinking, oh, there's going to be some bright spark who says, well, I tell you what, so I can experience more grace, I'll sin a whole lot more. And he's saying, don't be so crazy. That's a ridiculous thing because that's not who you are any longer. Grace is your new master. Sin is no longer your master. Why would you want to live in that? And actually, rationally, we could never outdo the grace of God. So what's the point of even trying? So that's where he's starting in these verses. Let's give a principle just as we read these to help us understand them. And this might touch on uh, a little bit what Graham is going to teach us next week about the Bible. This is really key. When we see a promise in the Bible, we are to claim it. When we see a command in the Bible, we're to obey it. And when we see a fact, we are to believe it. This is critical because a lot of people start trying to obey facts and get themselves in a whole lot of mess, trying to do something that has already been done. Let's go over this. When you see a promise, you... When you see a command, and when you see a fact. Now, in this passage, we've first of all got a whole bunch of facts. So what are we going to do with facts? We are going to believe them. So let's just go through some of these and understand this also. That in this passage, it's very specific about when things happened and what is happening now. So the Greek language in which Romans was written is very specific in its use of past, present, and future tense. And it refers always here to the past tense, that our identity with Christ is something that is sealed in history through two things, really. The cross and that moment we came to the cross and accepted Christ 
as Lord. And we can pick several things out in these verses. We are identified with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It's there in those verses for us. Verse 3 says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism. Verse 5, If we have been united with him in death, we're certainly going to be united with him in resurrection. These things have happened. If you have accepted Christ, these things are already a done deal. This isn't an instruction to be obeyed. You don't need to try to die to sin. You have died to sin. When you came to Christ, your sin was put on the cross and your relationship with sin ended forever. Elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about how we are identified with Christ in his ascension. The book of Ephesians says that we are now seated at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus Christ. He has raised us up into heavenly places and we're seated with him. That isn't something to be achieved. That is something that has been achieved through the goodness of God and his grace. The book of Romans later on says, we will also be united with him in his life. And again, back in Ephesians, it talks about how we are united with him in his power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. So you see, when we identify with Christ, when we put our faith in him, all these things have already happened. And one of the keys to living a distinctive Christian life is to just know who you now are. Don't keep going over who you once were. It changed forever. It changed permanently. Let's move on to the next one. It's a continuation of this theme. It's the same verses, really. So I'm not going to read those again. But just to say this, to settle our nature and identity in Christ once and for all will help us tremendously live a wholly distinctive life for him. Our identity in Christ is a question of knowledge, not experience. That is so important. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you do. It's who you are. That is important. In fact, let me just highlight one of those phrases in red. Who I am determines what I do. It's not the other way around. The world will tell you that who you, what you do determines who you are because we live in a performance-based society. The moment you're born, you may have been put in a beautiful baby contest and you may have won. But for everyone who wins, there's 100 losers. And then we go on, we, we have SATs at school. Don't talk to my wife about SATs. And don't talk to teachers about performance measurement of kids who are so young they should just be playing. But it, it speaks of where we are as a society that we value performance and achievement and significance above anything else. And that then feeds us the lie that who, what I do determines who I am. But the truth is opposite. It's... What, who I am determines what I do. In fact, it's a little bit more subtle than that. Because who are we in Christ? Well, we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. We have died to sin and we are alive to Christ. Those are facts. But you might not live by those facts if you don't believe those facts. So, actually, I'm going to change slightly what I've written there to say this. Who I believe I am determines what I do. Because you can be 
All of those things. You can be a child of God. You can have received Jesus as Lord, but actually not live in the truth of that. So to live a distinctive life for Jesus, we need to find out what is true, choose to believe it, and then live it out in practice. Another way of expressing this is that we are now saints and not sinners. So the New Testament uses the word saint about 45 times to describe people who have had a life-transforming change, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And only once does it use the word sinner to convey people who are Christians. And it's Paul himself saying, Jesus Christ is so good and so gracious, he can save anybody, he can save every sinner of whom I am the very worst. And he reflects on his life, how he persecuted the church, how he blasphemed. And in that passage, he is not so much expressing his identity as his humility. Because elsewhere, he says, you are saints, you are made holy. At the start of his book in Romans, he, will, he talks, he writes in the opening verses to the holy ones who are in Rome. To the most screwed up church in the New Testament, in Corinth, and you can read about it, the problems he had to address of um, immorality, of infighting, of greed. Do you know how he starts addressing them? To the saints in Corinth. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Number one, it's true, because who they are determines what they do. And if you forever call yourself a sinner, guess what you're going to do? Sin. If we can accept in our heart and settle our nature once and for all that we are now saints and not sinners, that empowers us to live as saints, to live a distinctive and a holy life. We've got another verse up there, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. Because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption. You know you have a brand new nature. This is incredible. The old has gone, and now you share the very nature of Jesus himself. I can't get my head around that, if I'm honest. But I'm telling you it's true. And I'm telling you it's true because the Bible says it's true. And we need something to base our lives on. Where are we up to? Settle your nature and identity once and for all. Let me give you an example why this is so important. Slavery in the United States was abolished by the 13th Amendment on the 18th of December, 1865. Have you got that? It was abolished on that day. How many slaves were there in the United States the next day? None. How many still thought they were slaves? Many. How many still lived like slaves? Most. How many of us are living as slaves to sin rather than having died to sin and being alive to Christ? Who you are determines what you do. Let's move on. Another few verses um, okay, I want to 
highlight, I don't think they're on there actually, verse 10 and 11 says this, the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. So we have got an attitude to be maintained. Something dramatic, life-transforming, radical has happened when we accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. But we have to maintain that attitude. Or I've tried to use a, a more inward, be always mindful of our new standing. We don't make ourselves dead to sin by considering it so. We consider it so because God already says it is so. We've got to be really careful we don't get things back to front. It is so. You died to sin when you put your faith in Christ. Your sin and your relationship with sin ended. He came and lived in your spirit, and now you are alive to Christ. Count it so because it is so. The death of Christ is an historical fact. It's well documented, AD 30-something, documented by the four gospel writers, documented by others who are writing at the time. Jewish historians Tacitus and Josephus will attest to the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Even the Jewish skeptic historians document there was a man, Jesus, who rose from the dead. It's an historic fact. Since it is an historic fact, these verses say, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. In the same way as what? In the same way that Jesus died once and for all, have that attitude that you have died once and for all. A couple of things to understand on this, though. Death is the ending of a relationship, not the extinction of something. So when something dies, it doesn't cease to exist. Let me explain this a bit. In the first book of the Bible, there was a command given to Adam, and, he, and God said, don't eat of that tree, because if you do, you will surely die. What happened? Adam ate of a tree, and he died. But he didn't die, because he was still alive, and he had to live in sin. The concept of death in the Bible is this. It's one of separation. It's not a finality. It's not saying you cease to exist when you die. What it's saying is it's a breaking off of a relationship. So when we die physically, we don't cease to exist, but there is a separation of spirit from body. My spirit will go forever to be with Jesus, and praise the Lord, he's going to give me a new body. So death by its definition in, in Scripture is the ending of a relationship, not the ending of an existence. So sin is still around. Who's aware of that? Who's aware of that? There's a brilliant illustration in Romans chapter 7, the following one, where Paul illustrates it graphically. He says, I, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I find myself not doing. We're going to come on to a little bit of that. Sin still exists, and the power of sin has not died. So we have been freed from the penalty of sin. We don't have to pay the price for sin. Jesus paid that for us. The power of sin has been broken, but it is still around. Let me give an illustration. And I'll do it from uh, those verses up there. Romans chapter 8 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, 
The word law is really key because a law means a principle. Or let's think of it just straightforwardly as a law and have a look at that aeroplane. How many of here how many here can fly? Why? Because of a law of gravity. How many here have flown in an aeroplane? When you're in that aeroplane, did gravity cease to exist? Why not? Because it's a law. It's in place forever. Did gravity reduce from 9.81 meters per second per second to zero meters per second? Did it lose its power? No, it was still very powerful. So what happened? We got in the plane and we accessed a greater law, the law of aerodynamics, the law of thrust and lift combined to raise us above and fly. And this is what Paul is saying here. Death is still around. Sin is still around. Sin is still powerful. But thanks be to God, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. I don't need to live under that principle, under that gravity, under that law any longer. It still exists. I have a power to say no because his spirit dwells within me and his life is within me. Let's move on. Okay. We've had the facts. What do we do with facts? Believe them. What do we do with promises? Promises. Claim them. Commands. Okay. We've had all nine verses of facts and that's the way it should be because we walk by faith faith is built on truth because Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free so we've got to know it we've got to know it he now turns to some commands some instructions and the first of which is this we are to allow our spirit to rule our body and soul Verse 10, the death he died, speaking of Jesus, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. There's an instruction. It's a command. It's our responsibility to not let sin rule and reign. How do we do that? We allow our spirit to rule our body and our soul. And I put up a little helpful, I find this helpful graphic up there. Let me talk us through it. Our spirit has been made new. We have a new nature. We are saints, we are not sinners. The old has gone, the new has come. We were dead in trespasses and sins, now we are alive to Christ. Our spirit, that's us, are alive, pure, whole, righteous before God, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done and our faith in him. We then have our mind, our will, and emotions, and some people call that the soul, and within that, we have a body. So let's get this the right way around. We are spirit within a body. I've heard it said over the years, oh, I've got a spirit. No, you don't have a spirit, you have a body, because you are spirit. And this is absolutely crucial, because you have been made new. Chapter 7, Paul refers to himself as the inner man, or woman, has been made new. Since 
we are made new, since we have power and strength in Christ Jesus in our spirit, our spirit can rule our emotions, our mind, and our will, and in turn affects our body. So everything, sin can remain in our mortal body, but not in us, because our spirit doesn't have sin in any longer. It is whole. It is pure in Christ. But we still have his battle. We struggle. Um, elsewhere in the New Testament, it, it's sometimes referred to as the flesh, for the learned ways of responding and reacting before we had Christ to turn to. The hurts, the habits, the hang-ups, the negative emotions, the negative thought patterns. But now, those can be changed because our spirit can rule our mind, our will, and emotion. And it's our responsibility to do that. One thing we're going to discover, I think, next week as Graham talks to us is the power of Scripture. It, it's life-transforming. It fills us with truth. It changes our perspective of who we are. And it is so critical to renew our mind, to renew our thinking. See, our mind is different from our brain. Our brain is in our body and will turn to dust. But our mind is the way the brain has been trained to think. So if you have negative thought patterns, you can undo those negative thought patterns because the brain is a hardware and the mind is a software. So as we immerse ourselves in the word of God, we learn what is true, we start believing it, believing it doesn't make it true, it is true, so we may as well believe it. We start to feed ourselves on it. Our spirit feeds our soul. It transforms our mind, our will, and emotions. Because God's intent is that we do live a distinct holy life. 1 John 2 verse 1 says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to us in our defense. So it is possible to live a holy life as we allow the radical change that has gone on within us to find its outworking. need to move on. Let's have a look at the next one. A couple, another principle. We need to exercise our will. So we've done lots of facts. We should believe and we can get hold of those by faith. But here's some more instructions. And with instructions, we are to obey. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You've got one negative demand and two positives. The negative one is do not offer what? Any part of yourself to sin, but rather offer yourself to God. This is how we grow. This is how we grow when we worship God. We, we come before him. Daily we submit to him and say, God, I am yours. I recognize I'm yours. We thank God that we have been made new. And we say to him, I want to be used as your instrument. I want to live for you now. See, our body is neutral. It is not good and it is not bad. Let me put it this way. So if you've got a car, you can use it to run drugs across the channel, or you can use it to run the food bank. So the instruction here is our body is neither good nor bad, but it can be used for good, nor bad, or good or bad, and therefore we're to offer every single part of our body as an instrument of righteousness to God. 
I think this is best done in the quiet place. When we're there before God every day and we should make time for God every day. Because when we come to a place of temptation, we will have learned a response. I was thinking of it this week. So um, I was thinking of how we talk about muscle memory. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase. How, how you can train your muscles to respond in certain ways. So musicians, practice your scales. C, <laughs> key of C has no sharps, no flats. D has a couple of sharps. You practice them, you practice them, you practice them, you practice them. And then when you come to ad lib, you'll find your hands and fingers moving to the right place. That was a keyboard. Guitarist, practice the chord changes, D to G to A to D to G to A to D. You won't even think about it when you do it. Drummers, practice your fills. And we talk about it, it becomes second nature, don't we? Um, music's not my thing, but, well, I love music, but I don't play very well. But I love playing football, and um, it's the same with football training. So our kids, I, I taught them all to play football, and I, they're all right-footed, naturally. And I rolled the ball always to their left foot. They will all take a shot and pass confidently with their left foot now. Why? Because Dad taught them some muscle memory. There it goes. You, you, you know, kick it back with your left, kick it back with your left, because I know you can kick with your right. And then we've gotten some more advanced stuff, keepy-uppies. Why are we doing keepy-uppies, Dad? Well, let's do 10 each, 10 and pass it on. And we can do this. We're, we're all right at it. 10 keepy-uppies, pass it on. 10 keepy-uppies, pass it on. Right, now you've done 10. Alternate feet keepy-uppies. Left, right, left, right. Your left foot is not just for standing on. Now you can do it left, right, below the knee. And then the next target was 100 keepy-uppies. Why? Because when someone pings you a ball and it's coming to you fast, you just do that. And the muscle memory will give you a soft foot, will trap the ball, and there it is. You don't have to think in a moment about what to do because you've trained yourself in the private place to do it. So we offer ourselves to God. We offer every single part of our body so we have a moral memory. So when we're put in a position of temptation to, to lie, to steal, to cheat to look at pornography, the instant reflex is one of choosing a righteous way. It, it takes time, it takes effort, but it's attainable because God's will is that we live holy lives in Christ Jesus. And often, if we don't train ourselves in the private place, we will often find ourselves in the point of temptation where it's too late because we were thought about the sin, we would have agreed to the sin, we would have um, started to take part in the sin, let's talk about pornography, oh, I could just look at that site. That's a moment to say no, because we have trained ourselves in a private place to say no. Uh, if I, I'll just look at the first page, and then you know what I understand, you understand what I'm saying here. The testosterone will go, the adrenaline will go, I'll just look at the second. Oh, nobody will know. Nobody will. And before you know it, it's running away with you. Why? Because your emotions are involved. Because our will has not managed our thoughts and has not managed our emotions. So we need to be making choices in the private place so we don't have to make decisions in the public place. But it is not second nature, it is new nature. So you practice your scales and you play by second nature. You practice your keepy-uppies and 
second nature, that touch. In the spiritual realm, in terms of living distinctively for Christ, this isn't second nature, this is new nature. <laughs> this is new nature, this is actually who I am. This is who I am. And that's great, we can feel good about that because it's an affirmation of all that God has called us to be. Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Our minds, our eyes, our ears, what we listen to, what we look at, the social media was mentioned earlier. I'm not against social media. You've got to get me. You've got to get me. But where's your truth coming from? Where are you getting your facts from to believe? I've given you a whole load today. Believe them because they're true. A lot of what is out there isn't true. Our hands, our sexuality, we give it all to God. We offer ourselves and every part of us to him daily, maybe even during the day, because we have that attitude of who we are in Christ Jesus. And lastly, let's carry on. We started with grace and we finished with grace. This isn't a try harder, do better message. Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. That's you. You're under grace. You're under grace. Often grace is talked about as um, an acronym. It's taking the first letters of a word and explaining what it means. God's riches at Christ's expense is a very common one. So God's riches come to us and we are saved at the expense of a cost of death of Jesus on the cross. But I've got a different one here. God's resource above circumstance and experience. No matter how you feel, no matter what others say about you, we live by grace. We live by grace. We don't live under law. We don't live under sin. Those are no longer our master. Grace is our new master. It's summarized in Titus 2 there. For the grace of God that brings salvation, so we're already saved by grace, has appeared to all men. But also this, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. It's the grace of God. And you know what? Those lifestyles are really attractive because they're not that common. <laughs> we can be so distinctive in the way we live. It's not a list of don't do that, don't do that. It's live who you are. Be whole. Be the new you. Do things according to your new nature. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled lives. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, live such good lives among the pagans that they may glorify God and give him praise on the day that he returns. Good lives are attractive. These people know they're loved. They're secure. They're honest. I've messed up. I've been forgiven. <laughs> you know, be vulnerable with people because I've found a saviour. I've found a new identity. I know who I am. I'm not searching for that any longer. Thank you.